There is no way we would have seen the massive buildup post 9-11 of the war on terror if you did not have mass incarceration already in place, if you did not have settler colonialism already not in place, right? There was a whole bunch of anti-immigrant policing prisons, bills that were passed during the 90s that were really, I would say, integral to building the infrastructure for then the buildup of the Patriot Act in 2001, for the buildup of prisons globally from the establishment of Gitmo as a place of indefinite detention for Muslims who are incarcerated. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, everyone, and thanks to Anthony Arnove and everyone at Haymarket Books and in the audience for creating this space and joining us tonight. We have a very special conversation building on the work of today's racial justice and abolitionist organizing and allied scholars and intellectuals, including our panelists. The Rakshan Raja is the co-director of the Justice for Muslims Collective, a community-based organization that works to dismantle structural Islamophobia through community organizing and empowerment, raising political consciousness and narrative shifting, and building strategic alliances across movements. Hi, Daraksha. Hi, everyone. Thank you, Amna, for having us. <laughs> Silky Shah is the executive director of Detention Watch Network and National Coalition Building Power to Abolish Immigration Detention in the United States. She has worked as an organizer on issues related to immigration detention, the prison industrial complex, and racial and migrant justice for nearly 20 years. Hi, Silky. <laughs> Hi, Amna. Thanks for great to be here. <laughs> Aziz Rana is a professor of law at Cornell University, and his research focuses on how shifting notions of race, citizenship, and empire have shaped American legal and political identity. He is the author of The Two Faces of American Freedom uh, from 2014. Hi, Aziz. Hi, Amna. Thanks so much for organizing this, and thanks to all the organizers. It's great to be here on this uh, admittedly very somber anniversary occasion. Yeah. So our goals for tonight are straightforward and ambitious. While I can guarantee you a conversation filled with insights about organizing present and past, we do not see this as a space to answer the questions posed by the title of the event, PIC Abolition, the War on Terror, and the Deportation Machine. But we do hope to develop our understanding about the connections between policing and prisons on the one hand and war and border making on the other, and to learn from and about current and past work to confront these structures of violence and exploitation that hold in place a varied but nonetheless global regime of racialization and capitalism. And so today, on the anniversary of George Floyd's death, we aim to think together about the relationship of abolitionist organizing to struggles against war, empire, and border enforcement. We hope to use this as an opportunity to learn about current campaigns to think about racial justice organizing grounded in black and brown communities and rooted in solidarity with organizing to abolish the prison industrial complex. 
We see these struggles as connected to deepening of anti-imperialist and internationalist politics in the United States, which we see many signs of. For example, in the unprecedented size and scale of Palestine solidarity protests all over the United States, or the emergence of the dissenters, a new collective organizing young people against war. And we know all of these questions are hard. They are more than questions. These are realities we must understand and we must fight. This is solidarity we must build and practice. This is about us working together to build a larger and larger us, a larger and larger we, because it's only through mass politics that we can take on these monstrous structures that play out on scales, micro to macro, local to global, in many, many ways. And while our movements are stronger than ever, we still have a long, long road ahead. Our question is always not just how to understand the world, but how to change it. We know that changing the world is not simply about making the right demands or getting your analysis right and particular to the time and the context, although that's essential. It's about organizing for power to undermine capitalist and colonialist, white supremacist and patriarchal relations, to build a world where interdependence and mutuality between humans and non-human animals and the land our collective needs and many life worlds of the earth take precedent over capital. And so we're gonna to try to explore all of this in the context of this really important organizing that the Raksha and Silky are involved with um, and to bring to bear Aziz's historical research on the long history of the left and internationalism. So our format for today is as such, I'm gonna ask the panelists a series of questions on the broad set of topics we hope to engage for tonight. If you have questions, please pose them um, and we will do our best to integrate them into the conversation. So with that, we're gonna just jump right in. Um, and Silky, I'm gonna turn to you. Um, as Aziz was gesturing at and as I named, um, it's the anniversary of George Floyd's death. Um, and of course, Derek Chauvin's brutal murder of um, George Floyd sparked these unprecedented global protests um, and protests in the United States against police violence and in many ways towards abolition. There are many accounts of kind of the radicalization of Black Lives Matter and the movement for Black Lives and the deepening of abolitionist discourse and frameworks and racial justice organizing more broadly. But we've also seen a kind of turn towards abolition um, in the immigrant justice space, which you're deeply involved with and have been involved in kind of fomenting. So I was hoping you could start us off by telling a story of the last decade of immigrant justice organizing, how and where it's radicalized. Um, yeah, just to reiterate, really grateful to be here on the panel with all of you, um, especially on this day, as we sort of think about that moment and what it catalyzed for us and where we are now. And what that means as we move forward. And so um, in terms of this question around the immigrant justice movement, especially in the last decade, I think it's, I mean, it's sort of impossible to talk about where this movement is at without thinking about um, Obama in particular in that period of time and what that sort of brought forth within the movement and what people were learning um, at. And I think most folks know this, but the immigrant rights movement, at least this current iteration, so much of it has been about passing a bill, passing a bill that was going to bring a lot of legalization to a lot of people. Um, for the most part, any of the bills that were proposed tended to have a lot of trade-offs for border security and more enforcement. Um, but this sort of iteration, very much coming out of a fight against a really harsh bill in 2005, 2006, um, 
by Sensenbrenner that, you know, started this sort of mass movement where people were saying, hey, we actually want to get um, legalization in the way that you're pushing, Bush was pushing border security, members of Congress at the time were pushing that was not what we wanted. Um, By the time Obama comes in, you really have, you know, this moment where he's saying, okay, I want to reform the system, I'm going to do something about it. And his response was to actually make it a more efficient and effective system that was going to target people with criminal convictions. That was very much what happened in year one and beyond. And so one of the things that happened was that organizers and advocates who are trying to support people who are being detained, who are being deported, really started to see the connections between the criminal punishment system and the immigration system. And what were the ways we were going to throw a wrench in this? Was it to, and understanding the arrest to deportation pipeline. So it was about, about local police targeting immigrants, including, and also ICE agents, but also about this connection at local jails. You saw different programs in place um, in booking how people were targeted then. If they were in the jail awaiting their sentence, you had ICE agents there targeting them. And so all these different things where people were sort of learning, well, if I want to stop my loved one from being deported, actually the way that I do this is stop this process within the criminal punishment system. Um and stop sort of ICE's engagement there. And so I think that was one really key piece of a lot of immigrant rights activists saying, oh, actually there's this really big relationship to the enforcement within the system um, and what's happening. The other thing I wanna, a couple other things I wanna name um, chronologically as we go. Uh, the other thing that's happening here is that you have a large set of undocumented youth who are kind of coming to age in this moment who are saying we are not going to sort of do the trope of, you know, we came here by no fault of our own, you know, like and like blame their parents, essentially. And this is about hardworking immigrants and all this nonsense and actually say we're undocumented. We're unafraid. We are going to come out of the shadows and say what we want. And I think that was really, really important um in this context and sort of those pieces together led to the not one more campaign which um was you know one of a a big piece that um had an impact on getting us to deferred action for child arrivals like so much of that moment was this both how the criminal punishment system targeted immigrants and undocumented youth and people coming out and saying hey this is this is more than just this like legalization fight, this is, there's a lot more going on here. As we fast forward, I mean, I think not one more was a particular moment because so much of what, especially speaking to detention, so much of what the focus was at that period of time was the deportation of my loved one. Um, and ICE is this unique agency that sort of does all of it. It does the arrest, it does the detention, it does the deportation. And so um, they have a lot of control over what happens there. And I think one of the things that not one more actually visibilized was the role of detention centers by holding actions, by having civil disobediences at those facilities to show, hey, this is, we're going to stop deportations by stopping these buses from moving, by stopping this at this physical space. And so all of that ha- happens and there's a lot more visibility. And then Trump comes in and the like veneer is off, like any sort of semblance that there's some idea that this agency um, or Department of Homeland Security was 
pro-immigrant in any way is, I mean, not that it really was there before, but I think ultimately, um, you know, everything was clearer for folks. And the family separation crisis was a moment where I think you saw a widening outside of like the immigrant rights movement of visibility, especially in terms of how parents and children were, and especially like the sort of like White suburban mom was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this happening was happening. I think it was one of the things that was hard about that moment is that actually our lack of vision about border really hurt us in terms of the um, demands that we could have. But it also was the moment when people were like, actually, maybe we should abolish ICE. And there was, um, you know, and a lot of us had been saying that for a long time, but then suddenly it became a catchphrase and and we didn't we didn't actually have like enough power to put forth a vision um, to sort of hold on to that. So all of this happens, all of this gets us to this point where there are some seeds there. You know, I don't think the abolish ice moment wouldn't, I don't know if it would have happened if it hadn't been for not one more or for other things that were happening. Um, but then last summer, and I think this is sort of where we are now today, especially on the anniversary of George Floyd's death. Um, you know, I think when for Detention Watch Network, the organization I work with, we came out calling for the abolition of detention in 2012. And I think a lot of people thought it was just a wild notion that we would say we don't want this thing, which which is surprising to me as an abolitionist who's like, well, this is pretty easy. These are just individuals who are in immigration proceedings. Like, that's all that's going on here. Um, and it was, you know, a lot of people really hesitant to say we believe in abolition. Um, but I think last summer and, you know, the sort of summer, summer of solidarity of like, you saw these completely mainstream organizations coming out and saying, actually, I think we are open to the abolition of detention. And for the most part, that's held. I think there's some groups that are retreating to some degree because of the conditions that we're in right now. But it is remarkable to me how much this like notion of abolition and there was sort of seeds with it within the immigrant rights movement for a really, really long time. Um, but last summer, because this conversation and, and this real, real question about racial justice was coming to the forefront. People felt that there was an opening and that they could take that stance. Um, so I'll just I'll, I'll stop there. And I think that is a lot of the radicalization. And I do think over time, the one other thing I would mention actually also is that in that moment of sort of the undocumented, unafraid and the moment of BLM, Black Lives Matter, like taking hold more. I think there was a lot of intentional relationship building between certain movement folks. So United We Dream or Movement for Black Lives, like th those connections actually sort of move toward this question of, OK, what does it mean for us to be accountable to other movements as we, um, you know, put forth our demands? And so I think there's a lot of pieces there. There's a long way for us to go. But, I, you know, I think um, last summer opened up a lot for for us. Thanks, Silky. Um, and in a little bit, hopefully we'll be able to talk a little bit about how you've been able to translate some of those, that um, space it opened up into concrete wins. Um, the Raksha, I want to turn to you now. You're involved um, with releasing this report recently, Abolish the War on Terror. Um, and that report marks a huge shift in terms of Muslim contestation of the national security state and the war on terror, um, which of course has some antecedents in 
for example, stop countering violent extremism work um, and participants in American Muslim communities and the movement for black lives and uh, abolitionist politics more broadly. Um, but I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the report um, and maybe a little bit um, about the kind of stuff that Silky was talking about in terms of how, in your experience, did this left, uh, more left and abolitionist politic emerge among the Muslim Arab and South Asian space? Yeah, no, thank you, Amna, for that. Um, I think that, first of all, you know, for many of our uh, grassroots groups that were behind and really putting this abolitionist agenda together, I think it really comes from, frankly, the burnout that many organizers on the ground are experiencing from being at the forefront of fighting not only the Trump era policies, Obama era policies, but also, frankly, the pandemic. I mean, we see viscerally on the ground when we work with our community members that while there is an overinvestment into the war on terror surveillance, entrapment, infiltration, we can't even get $600 for rent or for things that are, frankly, really necessary for many of our community members. So I think that when we came together to build this agenda, it was really coming from a place of, okay, these policies that have cost us trillions of dollars um, really have also de-invested the kind of things that our communities actually need, right? So I really want to shout out many of our partner groups that really came together. And again, I have the privilege of working with all of them, uh, you know, Vigilant Love, Heart Women and Girls, the Partnership to End Gendered Islamophobia, PANA San Diego, Project South, uh, U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, and also Palestinian Youth Movement, which really provided a lot of input into the agenda. And it came together really as soon as Biden was elected in office, all of us were on a field call between organizers. And there was a question that I had posed to folks about, is there a field-wide agenda that we are demanding of the incoming administration? Because what we saw under Obama-era engagement from our communities is very much a centrist, let's operate within uh, a national security and rights framework where we barter certain people's rights, we get some reforms. And to be really frank and transparent with you all, like many organizations in the mainstream in our communities look at us as we are so out there. This is not even possible. How could you even as Muslim-centered, Muslim-led groups or those who work with folks who are racialized as Muslim think that we can even go there, right? So I want to say that it's actually very transformative for our organizations to even put a demand out there that says not reform of the war on terror that says abolish the war on terror. That is actually pretty transformational for our groups to do. Um, and so with that, I just want to just briefly talk about what the agenda actually is, right? We are deeply inspired for many of the Black abolitionists who put out um, an, you know, a, an a divest and reinvest framework when we talk about our communities. And so with that, you know, just again, talking about what do we consider the war on terror? Obviously, the war on terror precedes 9-11 policies. We know that it was in existence prior to that. But just looking at the last 20 years, we're going to be hitting the 20th anniversary this year, right? The impact of the war on terror has been terrible. It's been devastating. 37 million refugees, 12 million individuals murdered, right? Seven Muslim-majority countries bombed. We have $6.4 trillion minimum that has been wasted on this. And we have right now currently in 80 countries, the U.S. is operating with counterterrorism uh, programs as of right now. So again, we've seen this like massive buildup. Um, 
post 9-11, really under the guise of fighting national security, the figure of the Muslim as a threat to security, to safety, our way of life. And that has really launched a whole regime, whether you're talking about anti-immigrant policies, whether you're talking about the buildup of mass surveillance, or even the blurred, further blurred lines between policing and militarization at even at the local level. Wherever we go, we always see this um, justification of national security and terrorism being weaponized to justify any level of state violence and impunity. There's no accountability. There's no transparency. And so because of that, um, some of the demands that we put forth in terms of what the uh, agenda is broken into in terms of from the abolish aspect of it, again, we're not saying that this is the entire, uh, the comprehensive entire war on terror, but we really built this part of the agenda based on the work of the organizations that really led it. So we're not just, you know, folks who are sitting around tables talking about the war on terror. We have groups that actually have histories of working in community fighting this infrastructure. So we really sort of broke it down talking about, again, uh, the infrastructure buildup of the war on terror in the United States, right, which we know that Department of Homeland Security was built right after 9-11. So we really talk about also the buildup of the border, border militarization. We talk about the uh, buildup of anti-immigrant policies. And then we also try to connect it to the buildup of wars and imperialism and the war and terror infrastructure globally, because we can't just talk about the war and terror domestically. We also have to connect it to a global level of violence. Um, and then we also just also for us, it was very important to connect it to the U.S. military funding of Israel and the apartheid and genocide of the Palestinian people. So really, we're really trying to take a much more comprehensive intersectional approach to war on terror, because we know that this has been built upon a lot of violence domestically as well as globally. And then we sort of get into the aspect of, I think, this agenda, which felt very visionary to us. You know, we really feel like there is an opening right now because of the winds of the abolitionist movement, but also because of the pandemic. And people, I think, for the first time are seeing that our priorities in terms of this country are totally off, <laughs> that they are waste. And so we're trying to also use this current moment to say, well, what is the where do we really want to put our money in? What are the structures we actually want to build? And so that's this really second aspect of the agenda, which talks about very much gender justice, racial justice, climate justice, and also takes an approach to amplify other agendas that other communities have also put forth. You know, we really believe that there is not, if we're going to win, we're all going to win, not just one of us. So that's really our approach. And that's where we really are coming from. And again, our hope is that we continue to build more and more. And that for those who are in the Muslim community, that, you know, we can transform ourselves and not be afraid to say we want the abolition of the war on terror, not to either be complicit in it or a demands of reform. Thanks so much, um, Direction, for sharing all of that and leading this really important work. Um, Aziz, so part of what's really exciting about these developments um, in terms of the radicalization of both the immigrant justice space and uh, you know, the emergence of this demand, abolish the war on terror, um, is the way that it kind of allows for signals, kind of echoes, um, and helps us develop internationalist and anti-imperial politics, which have been, um, you know, relatively shallow on the left for decades. But there's a long history of internationalism and anti-imperialism. Um, can you talk to us about how these issues were taken up by the new left and the black power movement in the 20th century? Yeah, sure. And uh, first, again, it's uh, it's great to be on, on the panel with uh, Silky Induction. Uh, so I, I think it's useful to just take a step back 
and lay out what's been the most common way of thinking about the relationship between reform, especially racial reform, and foreign policy, basically since the mid-20th century. And that's basically an approach that's grounded in the idea that the U.S. is exceptional. In other words, the U.S. from the founding has been committed to freedom and equality. That means that domestically, its institutions are basically just. So the U.S. is an incomplete liberal society marred only by, let's say, the, the, the sins of slavery, segregation, native expropriation. But it's on a path toward completing its liberal essence. And internationally, that also means that the U.S.'s interests are basically equivalent to the world's interests. And so it has a legitimate right to exercise a continuous and international police power, to intervene really wherever it sees its interests as undermined, because ultimately what the U.S. does to serve itself, it's doing to serve others. And that's actually generated a way of thinking about the relationship between, again, reform and foreign policy, where the thought is... Essentially, the project of racial reform is overcoming formal legal discrimination and ensuring that you can get worthy elements of black and brown communities integrated within the existing institutions. And that also then puts a very specific kind of pressure on black and brown communities, especially, which is the idea is that one of the ways that you're, you prove that you are worthy is by signing up for participating in fighting and dying for the security prerogatives of the state. So, um, you know, scholar Mary Dudziak refers to this as Cold War civil rights during the Cold War period. You show that you're worthy of the reforms at home by proving your patriotism, by being a, an American patriot that recognizes your own interests as bound up with the security prerogatives of the government. Now, one of the things that happens in the mid-1960s is that you have the passage of the Civil Rights Act the Voting Rights Act. And yet domestically, there's a really profound reality, which is these legal improvements have not altered the structural reality of sustained uh, uh, economic impoverishment and racism within the country. So, you know, Martin Luther King refers to this as the issue of uh, poverty amid plenty. He says that the country is facing circumstances that highlight the need for a radical restructuring in the basic architecture of American society. So there are real questions about whether or not the essentially like the reform agenda makes any sense. And at the same time, more and more activists are also paying attention to, well, what is it that the U.S. is doing abroad? And all of this should be familiar because it's the same basic analysis and conditions that continue to face American politics today. Namely, at that point, the U.S. was engaged in um, a brutal um, war in Vietnam against um, uh, a move, an anti-colonial movement for, for independence. It was facilitating apartheid regime in South Africa. And so you had an increased number of activists that, that recognized their own interests as act, actually aligned with various other anti-colonial forces in the third world fighting for self-determination and begin to wonder, well, wait a second, what is going on here? Our experience domestically is one of sustained subordination, and the state is actually backing the forces of empire and, in fact, participating directly in imposing new modes of colonialism on communities seeking their, their own freedom. And it ends up generating an alternative analysis. So, the claim that black radicals in particular, but the left, let's say, more generally starts to make by the time we get to the late 1960s is that the U.S. is not exceptional. It's not been free and equal from the founding. Rather, if you think of the relationship between the structure of institutions in the U.S. and the structure of institutions 
in various parts of the decolonizing world, you can see a real linkage. Just like South Africa, the U.S. too has historically been organized as a particular kind of colonial experiment in which racial insiders have enjoyed various kinds of economic and political benefits that distinguish the rights they they gain from various other black, brown, and dispossessed communities. Um, those communities may may have their labor <clears throat> and their land, the, their labor and their land may be essential for the provision of insider freedom, but they're systematically subordinated and excluded from the terms of meaningful membership and inclusion. And what that means is that the idea of signing up to the security prerogatives of the state is a fundamental rejection of one's own basic interests and commitment to freedom. That actually the alliances, the forms of solidarity that should exist are not between oppressed communities on the ground in the US like African-Americans and the state. I mean, the state has its interests are fundamentally in conflict with oppressed communities, but rather solidarities between African-Americans and other oppressed communities domestically and communities struggling against colonialism internationally. Um, did I disconnect for a second? I can't tell whether or not I went out for a moment. Um, no? Okay, great. So that means that solidaristic alliances should best be understood as ones that are anti-nationalist, they're in fact internationalist, and that link communities on the ground that are experiencing domestic forms of colonialism with those abroad that are facing a similar fate. And it meant that you saw this especially with the Black Panther Party, but across really the landscape of left institutions, that you had a call for an independent foreign policy, a foreign policy that was actually directly opposed to the security objectives of the state and repudiated the idea that the way that you prove that you're worthy of rights was by fighting and dying for those prerogatives. And it also was an approach that really thought of, you know, the politics, let's say, that we're describing as, as abolition as one that had both a domestic and a foreign orientation. In other words, the Panthers, for example, systematically called for the dismantling of the prison industrial complex, for the dismantling of policing, for the dismantling of the prison system. But they located it within an argument about security apparatuses more generally. They saw the lawlessness and violence that black and brown people faced in the US as a function of the kind of security apparatuses that colonial regimes systematically imposed in order to be able to govern, quote unquote, unruly populations. That there wasn't much difference between the lawless violence of policing in American cities, the kind of violence that led to the assassination of folks like Fred Hampton, and the type of emergency regimes that colonial administrations imposed on communities, for example, in places like Kenya, um, in the context of uprisings against imperial rule. And so they linked an argument to dismantle policing, for example, to an argument that said, well, we should also get rid of the standing army. We should also question the terms by which American power asserts itself overseas. And they actually read the war making that one identifies with Vietnam as a mode itself of policing that had to be contested, similarly seeing effectively the practice of policing domestically as a form of war making against historically oppressed peoples. Thanks, Aziz. Um, there's so much to talk about there. We kind of jumped into kind of learning directly about each of the 
um, each of your work. Um, but I want to step back a little bit and um, ask you to each do a little bit of analytic work, because I think in the kind of left and or racial justice abolitionist imagination, like I think at this point, there's probably a basic understanding that um, the border uh, war and um, p- prisons and police are connected, right? Um, but I think probably, I mean, I certainly need to do a little bit more thinking about, you know, what does that mean to make these connections? Um, so I was hoping that each of you could, um, starting with Direction, and then we'll go to Aziz and then Silky, talk us through how you conceive of the border and, wa- and war as connected to prisons and police um, and how you see the struggles as connected. Yeah, I mean, I think I definitely want to do more work on that as well. Um, But for me, I would say even in our agenda, one of the ways we make that connection, right, is that there is no way we would have seen the massive buildup post 9-11 of the war on terror if you did not have mass incarceration already in place, if you did not have settler colonialism already not in place, right? Those 90s, there were so many sets of bills starting from the 1994 crime bill, the 1996 anti, uh, anti-terrorism, anti I believe, anti-death penalty or terrorism act that was passed, right? There was a whole bunch of anti-immigrant policing prisons, bills that were passed during the 90s that were really, I would say, integral to building the infrastructure for then the buildup of the Patriot Act in 2001, for the buildup of prisons globally from the establishment of Gitmo as a place of indefinite detention for Muslims who are incarcerated. And so I think that like these regimes, these structures, they lean in on each other. I would also say that, you know, during right after the civil rights movement, the particular ways that anti-Black racism and the construction of Black people as dehuman, as criminals was integral to buying social support for the mass buildup of prisons and jails. I would say likewise, the figure of Muslims as the security threat and the dehumanization of our communities and the priming of society to say, anytime you have terrorists, think about this racial figure of a brown. Muslim foreigner, that that like construction has been central to really allowing for so many of these policies to really uh, grow over the, the past few years. And then I would say that again, right, we know that Department of Homeland Security was built post 9-11. Uh, we know that because of the mass hysteria and fear uh, of 9-11 and what happened that day of terrorism was used by the government to take all those systems and further strengthen them and grow them with unfortunately very little resistance in those post buildup years. I mean, even now in the comprehensive immigration reform or even racial justice sort of federal work that's happening, the national security becomes an exemption. That is the compromise that is always happening at the national level around advocacy. You can have quote unquote racial justice bills, but then national security is the loophole. And there, that is the compromise that is constantly done in immigration and racial justice uh, fields at the national scale. And so I think that's why also this agenda is so important because we see, even especially under Trump, right? We saw the ways in which they were using terrorism as a justification to separate families. We were seeing how they were using terrorism as a justification to further militarize the border. Constantly, we see that figure being uh, applied as of right now. So I think these are some ways that there are connections between the war on terror, you know, immigration enforcement, and also mass incarceration. Would you like me to, to jump in next? Yeah. So, you know, for me, I think it's really helpful to begin with, you know, frankly, the, the, the third world internationalist perspective that black radicals developed in the 60s, which is 
to view the U.S. through the lens of colonialism. And in the U.S. specifically, we're talking about subject colonialism. So a society that is structurally organized around a basic divide between the rights that are afforded to racially and economically privileged insiders and various dispossessed communities. And what that basically means is that, you know, from the founding and various kinds of iterations, freedom for some has been predicated in the U.S. on the expropriation and exclusion of others. And one of the things that's distinctive about all of these different sites, so the border, the prison industrial complex, and the war on terror, is the extent to which they are specific spaces that highlight that foundational dichotomy. In the U.S., we have a kind of basic approach of distinguishing between the domestic and foreign and treating different spheres as unrelated. And I think one of the things that that does is it makes it very hard for us to recognize how power operates across a variety of different settings in ways that are profoundly interlinked. And so just briefly, like if you think about the border, what is the border at least in part a story of? It's a story of how migrant communities who are predominantly workers and essential workers at that engage in labor that is necessary for the reproduction of American society and the survival of American capitalism, yet under circumstances because of the criminalization of migration, the harshness of detention, the draconian policies that are associated with the border, under circumstances in which they're essentially a non-white population from the part of the world that historically has not been included as insiders, um, facing profound legal peril with limited labor rights and essentially no political voice. That itself replicates exactly the history of colonialism. Second, look at the prison industrial complex. The prison industrial complex is a story of how the U.S. state, especially really over the last half century plus, has arranged itself to govern the poor and to govern a poor that is very clearly you know, intersectional. So that dis disproportionately governing an unruly population whose race and class status together makes it, uh, makes it presented as a, a specific kind of threat. It's, it's not by accident that 70% of the people today in state prison do not have high school degrees. And it's that governance of the poor that's again, part and parcel of a long history of how to manage populations that are not viewed as properly insiders. The war on terror. The war on terror is of a piece with a broader 20th century American imperial project that's grounded in the idea that the U.S. enjoys a continuous right of intervention everywhere. And that precisely because its interests are the world's interests, local self-determination is, you know, is largely secondary. And indeed, when we're talking about local self-determination in a post-colonial context, we're talking about the local self-determination of historically colonized communities that are attempting to develop something like meaningful independence in a world of unequal nation states. And what is the war on terror? The war on terror ultimately has been the justificatory language for being able to project power in a regionally, um, like str regionally strategically important part of the world, so the Middle East, um, to justify modes of intervention in the context of claiming that unless the U.S. essentially pacifies other parts of the globe, it domestically is going to experience various forms of threat, that freedom at home requires the projection of power abroad. And, and I'll just add three really brief takeaways that come from this. The first is, notice again, we tend to think of policing as a story of 
the local police officer, but all three are settings in which the operative framework is a framework of policing, of figuring out ways to use the security apparatus of the state to assert control over unruly populations so as to extract various kinds of economic, strategic, and security benefits. Two, the thing that defines all three of these areas, just as has long defined settler politics in the U.S., is systematic state impunity. Um, I, I can't tell if I'm going out again. No? Okay. Systematic state impunity. What, what, what do I mean? Each of these are areas in which state officials engage in extreme forms of violence with no consequences. So at the border, the government essentially disappears children, no consequences. War on terror. Somebody can engage in um, you know, facilitating a torture program and end up getting promoted to the head of the CIA. In local policing, police officers can engage in systematic acts of violence and coercion, no consequences. And this is a defining feature of how the state operates. And then the last thing is something I think that links prison industrial complex and the border specifically. We tend to talk about hyper-incarceration today as a mode of the new Jim Crow. I think it's also really important to see how border politics is itself a form of the new Jim Crow. Jim Crow was an economic system in the late 19th century in part to extract labor from previously enslaved African workers. What does the border system do? It essentially takes a non-white population, it ensures that they engage in essential forms of work, but under circumstances in which they have no meaningful rights and no political voice, let alone the right to vote. I mean, that is a, that is a direct successor of the kinds of logics that generated Jim Crow in the past. Um, I want to completely agree with that. And I think, I mean, it's so hard within the immigrant rights context because so much of the way the conversation is frustrating if you're trying to get any policy work done. And it's mostly trying, it's, it's doing all the things that Aziz is talking about where we're just basically like folks are just relying on these, you know, pro-America, the national security citizenship frame, like all that other nonsense, the exemptions, like all that is there. And it's a really frustrating place to even start a conversation. I do think that we've moved to like creating some space to not be in just that conversation. Um, I think, I think at some level, it's like, they're telling you these connections. So the one example I'll have is in, um, the first few days of Biden's administration, he put forth a new set of interior enforcement priorities. So rescinded one of the Trump EOs and said, okay, we're going to put, you know, we're going to have a moratorium on deportation for a hundred days. And it was actually kind of significant because he put it forth and said, actually, I'm not going to consider people's criminal convictions on whether I, you know, deport them or not for those hundred days, you know, short period of time. But it was a win for the movement. And I don't think that would have happened without last summer. I don't think that would have happened without so much of the work um, that's gone into pushing against this like deporter in chief frame, which he doesn't want to be called. Um, but of course, you know, Texas sued and they 
the Biden administration hasn't fought for it at all. But the other thing they put forth was this in, interior interim enforcement guidelines. Um, so priorities, who are ICE agents going to target for detention and deportation? Um, and the frame is there. So the first the first category is people for national security are, you know, they are, it's, it's basically like anybody who has some relationship to terrorism, espionage, or anything related to national security, as broad as you can have it. Like the second category, border security, anybody who's come after November 1st, 2020 is a target, essentially. And the third category, public safety, anybody who has a certain conviction is going to be targeted. So they're telling you these all these things are connected. They're actually telling us this. Um, and then beyond that, I mean, it was it was sort of interesting to see because I think the scope of the public safety category was actually more narrow than we had ever seen it before. But then they started to get some pressure. And so by February 18th, they put out a new memo that says um, that added gang provisions, which are a hundred percent, you know, strategies to target, like very much in, embedded in anti-black, anti-brown racism, um, anti-Latinx in particular, um, and and like sort of expanded the scope within this really wild category of ag like aggravated felony, which is a term that's specific in immigration that came about in that what Direction was talking about, which is like the, ni the 90s era where they sort of expanded the scope of who could be targeted for detention and deportation and specifically, you know, the aggravated and felony. It's, it's, a, it's a nonsense term for, in so many ways in, in general. And then in this context, it doesn't have to mean those things, um, even in the, you know, criminal punishment system. So it's a it's really amazing to see how much they themselves are saying, hey, like all these things are connected and we are going to use this as a strategy to expel people. And and the other thing I would say is, you know, I think there is this, this piece about the border that I think, you know, folks who are in the immigrant justice movement and the broader um, conversation about, you know, what's happening uh, in other parts of the world, whether it's climate justice or, um, anti-imperialism efforts, every, everything. It's, well, what is our vision there? What are we trying to do? And in so many ways, the conversation has been this sort of like charity perspective as opposed to a justice-oriented perspective. And I think what was so exciting actually about like Direction Y'all doing the Abolish the War on Terror and this idea of abolition in general and, and you know, Hersha's book, Hersha Valia's book, um, Border and Rule, is opening up space to say, actually, all this way that we do this, abolition gives us something to say, hey, all the way that we think, all the ways that we think about this are not okay. <laughs> and so like, even if we, you know, are trying to figure out what that vision is, trying to figure out that process of dismantling has to be a part of it. And I think, um, you know, that, that gives me some hope, but I will say, you know, everything we've seen in this administration, there are a hundred percent frightened by the border. They don't want to do anything because of what's happening at the border. The media is completely craven and ready to use the border as a strategy to get more attention because Trump isn't around. And so much of the, that yeah, so much of any of the decisions that get made on what happens for people who are currently living here is really actually dependent on what's happening at the border. 
Um, so similarly, this sort of domestic colonialism, I think, is is a good frame as we think about, you know, how foreign policy becomes domestic policy and vice versa. Um, so add that. Thanks, Silky, and thanks to you all. So um, I have a bunch of specific questions for each of you, but we have already kind of laid a lot on the table, and um, I want to give you all an opportunity to respond to one another, um, if you'd like, before we pivot to those specific questions. And before I ask you to do that, I did want to share, I mean, the other thing that I feel is important um, and is, I think, more and more undeniable as you make these connections between these systems is not simply that these are modes of um, state violence in the classical liberal sense of like focusing on the government, but it's also kind of intersectional with regimes of um, economic exploitation or capitalism. Um, and that seems like a space where on the left, I think we need to do a lot more thinking about how to kind of like integrate our analysis and our movements. Um, I don't quite agree with this characterization that seems to keep coming up, but there seems to be this kind of sense that you have this kind of abolitionist or racial justice left and then a socialist left over here, anti-capitalist left. And I think it's a lot more intermixed than this, but I do think it's important, um, you know, on the whole spectrum um, of the left to kind of think in more integrated ways about how these political, economic, and social systems work um, integrated with one another. Um, any comments or reflections on um, the co-panelist comments so far before we turn to other questions? All right, well, oh, direction. Yeah, I think Omna, just in response to what you just said right now, um, I wanted to just share an example uh, that we, that I think in our work was really helpful for me to see the connections between U.S. intervention, migration, and then who are the essential workers that are disposable in the economy here, right? So um, one of our projects that we've been doing is doing oral histories with Muslim workers. And um, one of our workers that, you know, we documented his story, right, he talks about being from Afghanistan and having to do the asylum process, having to work with the US military, because again, who gets asylum um, at the end of the day, right? So here are conditions that the United States is creating for people where they can't live in their own home countries because there is war. And then they are put through these really violent processes of whether it's migrating to asylum or refugee seeking, and then coming into a country where you're seen as disposable, having to do jobs, whether it's being a Lyft driver, or Uber driver, where you are part of the disposable sector of the economy. And so I think for me, listening to his story really crystallized, again, this relationship of the war on terror to then creating certain migrant labor um, that then the United States exploits right here. And so, and, and I think the hardest part of it is all is as well is the people's lived realities. I think in speaking to him, for him to be like this situation here during a pandemic as horrible is as it is was better than being in war in Afghanistan. Like I think just walking away with what are the degrees that people are really living with. I think that's also a really important point to like underscore as we talk about immigration or migrations is the US is playing an active role in creating the conditions which are pushing people out of their homes. Um, and then we criminalize them when they come here or treat them as less than. All right, so maybe that's a good pivot um, to thinking about, um, you know, just how to confront these systems, linking the systems 
has the possibility of making the fight seem too broad and overwhelming in a way that, you know, arguably could make organizing feel impossible. But, and one of the great things about campaigns and demands and organizing is how organizers like Silky and Direction, like make struggle concrete by focusing in um, and waging fights against particular targets with particular demands. Um, But of course, it's not just about the demands, but organizing that will create the world we are fighting for. And so Silky, I was hoping we would start with you and then see if the Rakshan Aziz want to add anything. Um, What kinds of demands um, do you find most inspiring? What kind of organizing are you doing um, from which we can learn? Yeah, I can jump in, I guess. Um, I think I think I know what the question is, so I can jump in. Um, I so in terms of. I mean, what's interesting is I think we you know, one of the big pieces that I think everyone's having a conversation right now about is defund. So, um, you know, when I think about the immigration context and and what we've been talking about this whole time, so all, all of these instances and. And if we go back really far, even or not even that far, but to like the 1920s, when um, you had these two laws put in place, 1325 and 1326, which some people might know about by a white supremacist senator um, that targeted people specifically for entry and reentry and was specifically to target, you know, people who are Mexican coming across the border. Um and the, you know, they, th- those laws existed. They were used periodically, not very much for a very long time. And then in the 90s, after there was a bunch of money started to be funneled into border security, they were like, oh, actually, maybe we'll use these laws more. Like maybe U.S. attorneys were like, OK, we're going to prosecute more people for this. And so we went from, you know, in the 90s, something like 4000 people being prosecuted a year to um, in you know, post 9-11 after Operation Streamline, um, which is a, you know, mass prosecution um, program at the border to, you know, I think at some point over 50,000 to 90,000 people being prosecuted. And a lot of this to me is about how much, and and also when we saw the 1996 laws with which folks have referred to, um, that really shifted the paradigm in the legal sense around immigration um, and exposed and created a lot more people who could be targeted. You know, people started to be targeted, but then after 9-11, you saw a ton of money being funneled into it. And so basically, you know, you go from DHS being created, money, money, money going in um, to where we are now, which they're just so hesitant. Like once you start giving money to an agency and start giving those resources, they're so much more resistant to taking those away. Um, So a few years ago, we launched a campaign called Defund Hate um, in 2017. And it was really about, you know, the bigger frame was about Trump's border wall. But for us also, it was very much about the number of ICE agents they were going to fund and also, which are essentially the police, the ICE police, um, and the number of detention beds. Because basically, once they have those numbers in place, especially on detention beds, they sort of use it as a marker of where they need to get. Or actually, the way ICE has done this so far is, okay, if, say we're funded for $34,000, we are actually going to detain forty to 45000 And then Congress is going to come a tr- around next year and 
you know, basically bail us out and then also add those beds on to the next year. So Biden's budget comes out on Friday. We'll see what the number is. I will see what happens. Um, but I, I think that, you know, defund is such a critical strategy. And, and I think one of the things that's exciting is actually we, you know, we've been partnering with folks like Justice for Muslims Collective, the U.S. Campaign for Palestinian Rights, um, people over the Pentagon, the Poor People's Campaign, to sort of show how much actually all this money within our federal government is going to things that we don't believe in and, and how we can make those connections. And then still having our acute organizing focused on some of these specific fights. And so it's like both this, what's so important about this is that we both have strategies that are organizing for specific wins and then also showing solidarity in those sort of key moments um, and bringing those connections together as much as we possibly can. I think the other thing, so I think to me that is the conversation about how we challenge the war on terror, challenge the deportation machine, challenge, you know, war in general, or U.S. role in other parts of the world. But then when we look locally, I actually, and this is where I think this sort of conversation on, you know, class struggle in the U.S. is a key piece here, is that so much of this is about a carceral economy and how much that embeds the system that we have right now. And we're already seeing this with the detention system where so many less people are being detained because the border is essentially closed. And um, some counties are saying, well, maybe we'll we'll stop our contracts because we're not getting funny money from the federal government, but we need to find additional people to incarcerate because we still need to get that money. Um, and so I, I think, you know, there's been a lot. One of the, the shifts that we started to see under Obama and continue to see and, and under Trump really blew up and also continue to see now is more folks saying, well, nothing's happening at the federal government level. Let's how do, how do we get states and localities to divest from detention or um, policing of immigrants? Um, and I think those are going to be, you know, in some places we're seeing alignment between groups who are also trying to curb incarceration, to decarcerate, um, to defund the police. I think more and more we're starting to see that. I think there's still a long way to go. Um, but I do feel that, you know, there's we have a campaign called Communities Not Cages um, with, you know, over 18 states, like folks really fighting for closure of these facilities have had some successes, had a win last week, which is very exciting. Um, but I think, you know, this only works if we're all doing it, if we're doing it in all these different places, because then they can go and say, hey, we're just going to detain all these people in Louisiana or we're going to detain all these people in Alabama, et cetera. And so I think. I think both this this need to talk about the funding, the resources going to this, and then also what is the just transition away from a carceral economy as we think about it in the climate justice world. And um, I think also similarly for the prison industrial complex, because it's so tied to these pieces, it actually makes it harder for us to, um, to dismantle. So I think that that solidarity work is really key. Thanks, Silky. Darakshan, do you want to add anything based on the work that you're doing? Um, I think on, 
you know, we have way more work to do, to be honest. I think we're in the phase of even just getting alignment around what an abolitionist framework that is movement oriented around the war on terror looks like. I think that there are definitely some really great groups at the local level moving work. So I definitely want to shout out. I mean, I don't know if they're necessarily abolitionists, but I think some of the work around getting um, localities to not participate in the JTTFs, the Joint Terrorism Task Forces, I think that's been a really great win to see out of Portland and also in the Bay Area. Um, I think there's a lot of potential there of like one of the sort of ways the war on terror brings immigration enforcement, national like entrapment infiltration, and also coordination among different law enforcement agencies at the local and federal level. I think that's one concrete campaign that, you know, could be done in other areas of the country too, where there are JTTFs. It also brings in the fusion center piece too, which have been used to surveil organizers and activists. And so I think these are some campaigns that we see. I think there's been a lot of movement around the CVE piece. Um, there's a stop CVE coalition. They do great work. Um, I think at this point, it just, we don't necessarily though have like a national coordinating space that Silky, um, you know, with DWN, they've been able to build the, which is such a beautiful model of defund hate that, you know, obviously we're looking at like, what does this look like? Because um, we do need some coordination of localities to see if we can make some change at the federal level, but we're way, way, we're just at the starting phases. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the other work that comes to mind just on your list is the longstanding organizing to cut ties between local police and the Israeli Defense Forces and the training kind of relationships there. Um, Aziz, do you want to add anything? Yeah, so I had two thoughts. So the, the first is, I just think it's actually really important, um, the spread of the, the abolitionist frame. So when we're whether we're talking about end detention or end the war on terror or, you know, uh, abolish... Uh, prison and, and police abolition. Uh, and I think the, the importance here is the way in which it just, sh it provides an emancipatory horizon and it shifts the terms of how you engage in politics. And, you know, one example I think is just thinking about the experience of Muslim communities in the U.S. over the last two decades. The, the thing that's really striking to me is how much of the, the frame of enjoying or achieving various kinds of rights is based on, frankly, you know, s signing up for the prerogatives of the state and proving that you're a good Muslim. I, you know, the example that I always think about is the 2016 Democratic National Convention and the speech that Clinton gave. And I'm going to paraphrase here, but Clinton basically said in the context of the speech that, you know, and to Muslims, if you hate terror and believe in freedom, work with us. And the, the entire approach is essentially that not exactly that rights are conditional, but that rights are tied in to an, a, a specific kind of assimilationist project. And this is an experience really that has defined communities, non-white communities for centuries. And in many ways, to me, like one of the classic um, uh, comparisons, along, of course, with uh, African-Americans in the U.S., is the experience of Japanese-Americans and Japanese people throughout the first half of the 20th century, where the U.S.'s power was hot in a specific region. It understood its strategic objectives as tied up with asserting you know, control in the Pacific, just like asserting control in the Middle East. And that ended up constructing a community as essentially a community that was dangerous or threatening to the U.S. And then the arguments were, well, there was something about the culture of this community that meant that they couldn't necessarily assimilate and that required various kinds of surveillance. I mean, all of this should be very familiar from how we think and talk about um, Muslims today. And similarly, you had this, the demand, which is you had to show that you were a, like a, a good 
non-white person that the community could assimilate. And it produces oftentimes, even you know, at the grassroots level, which is totally understandable if you're facing various kinds of coercion and threat, a continuous desire to, to show that, in fact, you can assimilate, like that you are the right kind of citizen. And a variety of hoops that are continuously jumped through, and yet the horizon of actually being treated as a, as a full member is always receding. And the reason why it's always receding is because the, the coercion and the surveillance isn't actually tied to anything inherent in the community, any like inherent threat in the community. The coercion and surveillance is tied to the security objectives in a specific region, like the fact that American power was hot in the Pacific or was hot or is hot now in the Middle East. You know, what transformed the relationship between the U.S. state and, let's say, and Japanese people in the first half of the 20th century really was nothing about Japanese Americans. It was that essentially the U.S. engaged, like successfully, totally defeated Japan, and then its security objectives moved. And it was under those conditions that Asian Americans then got reinscribed as quote unquote model minorities with all the problems that that entails. And similarly, like there's nothing really that Muslim people in the U.S. can do to ultimately prove that they're, you know, like they're, they're truly been integrated because the, the driving force are the dynamics of how American power is operating elsewhere. And so one thing that the abolitionist framework here, like the end the war on terror framework does, is it reorients the terms of what we should be focusing on, which is less the inherent goodness of the community and more, well, what, what's, the, what's the mode of power that's shaping how um, a community under threat and surveillance is actually being treated by the state. So that's one thought. And then second, very quickly, like, I, I mean, this is something that Amna, you've, um, you've written about. And so, you know, you, you should feel free to jump in here. But one thing that I think is really um, meaningful at the concrete level about the action, the, the work that both Silky and Drakshan are engaged in is the way in which we can think of the, these efforts as um, framed by commitment to non-reformist or revolutionary reforms. In other words, looking at the, the landscape of how uh, oppressed communities are actually being treated, and then trying to figure out levers, like specific concrete reform levers that are achievable in the medium term, that would actually disrupt the reproduction of the status quo, that expand the bargaining power and strength of oppressed communities that are engaged in struggle against various kinds of external threats. And so one thing that I think is, you know, is great about how the conversation has shifted is it provides this emancipatory horizon that shifts the terms generally of the conversation. And it's also concretely focused on specific levers that can have real meaningful effects on power imbalances in the present. Thanks for that, Aziz. Um... Okay, so we probably have time for one more question before we kind of um, do some closing out. Um, and I guess I want to focus on um, this. Um, you know, so we kind of promised at the outset and on Twitter that we were going to talk about anti-imperialism and internationalism. And I think in a way that is one frame, one way to kind of link these different struggles together, um, one of many, but still one frame and an important one. Um, and I, starting with the Drakshan, then going to Aziz, and then Silky, if you want to add anything, welcome your thoughts as well. Just wanted to give each of you an opportunity to talk about 
what you see as opportunities and challenges for building internationalist and anti-imperialist politics against the war and deportation machine in the United States? Um, That's a pretty big question. Um, I think one, we have still some work to do uh, in terms of the movement work to even make an internationalist movement and make the connections of what's happening at the local level, domestic level to what is happening abroad. I think we still have some work to do to make those through lines and then really some strategic campaigns um, that we could move. So I think there's a lot of learning there to do. I think around the piece on the war on terror, I think one, we are experiencing a level of historical amnesia where people have even forgotten that a war on terror exists or what has happened. I think some of the language is really shifting. And I know when I talk to some folks who are like, what are you talking about? This even exists right now. Um, And we're also seeing, especially given the rise of the vigilante violence, specifically white supremacist groups out here, what happened on Capitol Hill. Um, There is now, I would say, a push from the Biden administration, but also from some of our folks in the civil rights movement who are pushing a domestic terrorism expansion to address white supremacists. And it's being pushed as something that is in the benefit of communities of color. And so I think we've had some struggles there. Um, It speaks to some of the, you know, the areas of growth and also just talking about how is it, how has the war on terror, how has the terrorism framing impacted our communities? And then also, I would say, in terms of for specifically African American communities, talking about a history of racial terrorism. So I think there's a lot of just um, community building we have to do internally within the Muslim community, given we're not homogenous. And then also, just what are these frameworks mean for different communities? And how do we build something that doesn't throw some subset of our communities under the bus for the benefit of some other community, right? Um, And then the third piece I would say is that we are seeing more and more the hate violence work being co-opted to push CVE and surveillance uh, and extremism, counter extremism programs, this idea that all extremists, black, brown, white, it's the same without any structural analysis of how this has been used to weaponize against black and brown communities. So we have some work there. I think with the rise of hate violence against Asian American communities, we're seeing some of the hate violence work being co-opted. And again, we have a lot more work to do with our various different communities to talk about these systems and structures. And then lastly, I will say that we're seeing more and more uh, the framework of national security being used to tackle climate change, climate disasters, pandemics. Um, some of the funding for now, again, CVE programs is under FEMA. Uh, and so we're going to also have to really keep an eye out on that, on how natural this framework of national security is being used against anything and everything and how it could be harmful um, in the future. So I think these are just some some future frontiers and things to think about um, as we continue. Yeah. So I guess I'll, I'll just note what I see as a real opportunity and then, you know, a persistent structural challenge. So the opportunity, I think it's, it's worth just noting that even this conversation that we're having is a product of a specific moment. I mean, this is, this is the period in my lifetime where you have the most sort of sustained kind of left internationalist politics that is part of the the general discussion. I mean, this the, the, it's really unlike you know anything that I can recall or remember, and it's certainly quite different than you know the the having these conversations in two thousand and two, two thousand and three, and I do think a significant part of this goes to the the movement for Black Lives and the way in which the movement for Black Lives very consciously linked up 
not with the traditional scripts about how you make civil rights claims that's sort of grounded in American exceptionalism, but with the black radical and internationalist tradition through the, the language of invest and divest, including in 2016, a position that was quite controversial at the time, which is, you know, calling out um, forms of colonialism and injustice in, in Israel-Palestine. And, you know, one effect of that, I think, has been to transform a lot of the nature of the conversation that we see that's ongoing, that the movement for black lives over the last five years and certainly in the last last year has really emphasized the fact that the racial analysis that they apply, that activists apply to the U.S., is a global analysis and is just as relevant for making sense of American foreign policy, that there's no distinction between, you know, an incompletely liberal society at home and a foreign policy that's that's based on, you know, principles of, of liberal inclusion, that that these operate on, on both sides and, and in both directions. And I think you can see that very clearly in how the politics of Palestinian solidarity has played out over the last last month. So that, to me, I think is an indicator of a real change that's, you know, worth noting. For me, the big challenge is a structural challenge that's the product basically of the end of formal colonialism. So in the 60s and 70s, if you were a member of a group like you know, the Panthers, but really any of the different um, left, left organizations, that, and you wanted to engage in solidarity with um, colonized communities abroad in contestation of empire, it was... It was not it, not always easy, but it was much clearer who you were in solidarity with, because there were specific movements with institutional leadership. Like you're opposed to apartheid in South Africa, you can create connections with, you know, the ANC or the Pan African Congress or the PAC, and there was obviously lots of internal. Um, uh, divisions within these parties. It could be quite difficult for activists in the U.S. to know exactly who should support within the intricacy of these um, these movement politics. But at the same time, you felt like, well, they're basically like anti-colonial organizations and that you can form alliances with those organizations and you can get a sense of, well, what policies you should pursue based on what those organizations were actually committed to and interested in. And one of the things that happened with the end of um, with decolonization and like the independence period is you had the rise of new states that for a variety of different reasons, including, you know, real internal weaknesses in the first and second generation of leaders became like deeply authoritarian were totally implicated in global relations of capitalism and, you know, pursued various kinds of authoritarian turns. And it became increasingly hard to figure out, well, who you should actually be in solidarity with. You know, that it's very difficult to make alliances with, you know, these these new governments when the policies might actually not, the policies there might not actually be consistent with underlying and self-determining interests of the people on the ground. And it, it produced a clear divide um, between the, what we could think of as a kind of internationalist solidarity movement and um, what's what emerged as the anti-war politics in the U.S., which became largely a politics of like not in our name or a politics of conscience. And I think part of the question today is how to actually restitch concrete modes of institutional solidarity between communities in the U.S. and communities overseas in a context in which you don't have kind of the, the much clearer terms of representational authority 
that those old anti-colonial organizations provided. But that's the, that's the problem for the present. Um, I'm going to start on challenges and go to opportunities for, I don't know, because, you know, it's good to end on a high note. Um, I um, I mean, I think in terms of challenges, I completely agree um, with what Drakshan and Aziz shared. I mean, I, I think that there's there's a lot that we're, I mean, so if you're looking at the sort of acute moment of what we're negotiating right now is that, um, you know, yes, we had four years of Trump, but we didn't come out of that with like, for immigration with like, the vision of where to go. Like, I think there's a lot of what we dismantle, but not what we do, do we do from here. And I think the, the reason why the border conversation can take up the amount of space it can is because the demands that folks have aren't the non-reformist reforms, in fact. And in so many ways, it's, it's you know, let's put a Band-Aid on something like, you know, what's happening with child detention, for instance, right now is such a good example where the demand from a lot of the groups who are coming from a more humanitarian perspective is, well, children shouldn't be held in customs and border protection detention centers. They're horrifying places and they should never be held there. So we don't want them held there if they're coming unaccompanied. And so now let's put them in, you know, these other facilities. And, you know, there's a lot of questions about what happens there and what it should look like and how big they are and um, length of stay and all those questions. But it's actually like, well, is the demand that they aren't held in CBP custody or is the demand that actually you change a asylum policy and what's happening at the border so kids don't have to come alone because they're coming alone largely because their parents aren't going to be let in. And, and so I think that those are the types of things where everybody really wants there to be some shift, but the, the answers that they have aren't enough and aren't going to solve any sort of quote unquote problem. Um, and so I think a huge challenge we have is saying, okay, well, what is our vision for this? And I, I think it it's a struggle because of these questions around the nation state and what that means and what freedom of movement means in this context, especially given how politicized it's become. I mean, if you think of 40 years ago when, you know, Bush and Reagan were debating and over themselves about how to protect undocumented immigrants, we've come to a, a very different place now. And obviously, that's not what they were trying to do then. But ultimately, like the rhetoric has taken over in a way that actually everything is about the border. And our ability to win is going to be really hard based on that. Um, I also yeah, and I, I, I definitely think that um, I also think that this sort of thing that's happening in the U.S. and the sort of division between states and how it's, how we saw it play out with COVID um, and how we're seeing it play out with some of these states that are saying California, Washington State, New York, Maryland, et cetera, saying, hey, actually, we don't want to have these immigration policies or we want to decarcerate or we want to do X, Y, Z. And then other states saying, actually, we want to do it, it you know, a ton. And, and there's just this huge divide. So I think for a long time, people would think about this as um, the marriage equality fight, which I'm not repping in any way, but just to say that I think there was this idea, there was all these like efforts to say, how do we get all the states to move so we can get some federal policy to shift? I think that's going to be harder as we see divisions between um, states in the U.S. And, and how folks are responding to 
defund the police or, um, you know, anti-immigration enforcement, et cetera. Um, I also think uh, another challenge is is sort of all the things that, are, you know, the surveillance state feels just like imminent and really um, it's there completely already. So it's not even imminent, but like what's going to happen, po- you know, as we move, if we move hopefully away from incarceration, like what does that actually look like and how does tech work with it? And right now we're there you know, there's been a lot of um, use of electronic monitors, ankle shackle monitors for people who are coming out of immigration detention, or sometimes people who wouldn't even have been in immigration detention in the first place, which is mostly what we see is just an expanding of scope of custody as opposed to a reduction in detention. But, you know, now we see these sort of like phone apps where people have to take photos of themselves and they're being tracked and et cetera. And so um, I think those are a lot of risks that we're sort of negotiating and challenges we're going to continue to have to figure out in terms of opportunities. I mean, I, I think, you know, having been working towards some form of abolition as Amna and I have had this conversation for a very long time and thinking about these questions, I think last summer was absolutely inspiring and incredible to see how much we've moved. And, and I think there's the organizing and the desire to organize and for people to learn about what it means to organize and work together. And we see this in a lot of different ways um, happening within movements, Movement for Black Lives, DSA, et cetera. There's so much work happening on the ground um, to build relationship and connection to people um, and fight for what we want. And there's also a strong desire for political education in a way that I hadn't seen for many years, right? Like it was like, we're just gonna do the things that we know. But now it's like, no, actually, like, we're all really, really excited about all the books that Haymarket's putting out right now, and wanting to have conversations about them and push our thinking and like, what does this actually mean and ready to have these conversations. And I just, yeah, I think that's like a huge, a huge opportunity for us um, as we move forward. So I think there's a lot of openings. We've seen some movement. Um, The winds are going to lag, they're going to take time. But I think, um, I'm very hopeful in a lot of ways. Thanks, Silky, and thanks to all of you. So in the final few minutes we have together, I just wanted to give um, each of you an opportunity to um, identify any work um, that you want to highlight or let our audience know how they can plug in and support the work um, that you are doing. So maybe, Silky, do you want to start this time? Um, I mentioned some of the things already. So, you know, we have a campaign called Communities Not Cages, um, which is doing multiple things, both trying to stop detention centers. Um, It's trying to stop expansion, but mostly trying to shut down facilities at the local level and also through state legislation. And then also now really pressuring Biden. And we had our first win on Thursday where they announced that they were going to end the contract with the Irwin Detention Center in Georgia, which is the facility where the forced gynecological procedures, hysterectomies happened last fall. Um, And so that was a win. Um, And I think, you know, if you're in a local area where you want to work on detention, chances are we have like a campaign or folks that you can connect with and we would love to connect you and 
all that info is on the website. And then I also mentioned defund hate. Biden's budget comes out on Friday. We'll see what happens with that. And Congress is going to be deciding on that over the next few months. So there'll be different points of action to push them to reduce the number of detention beds and um, money for border tech wall and ICE agents and all the different things. So um, yeah, check it out on detentionwatchnetwork.org. Direction, you want to go next? Sure. Um, I think if you are interested in the abolition agenda that we created, um, definitely follow Justice for Muslims Collective. Our web website is justiceformuslims.org. And if you're interested, you know, we are going to be hosting a movement convening um, near the 20th anniversary uh, this year. And so if you're interested in collaborating or reaching out to us or building on this agenda, please do definitely reach out to us. We're also going to be doing some political education events, including a surveillance town hall that is going to be happening in two weeks. So again, Again, these are multiple opportunities if you want to be engaged, want to plug in and move the work. We we need all the support that we can get and all the partnerships in the world. So that's yeah. Uh, and nothing really to add, but I, I would just underscore how important the work that both Silky and Direction are doing, and that you know, for folks that are out there that are interested, that this is um, this is you know the essential struggles of our time. Thanks, Aziz. So with that, I think we are at the end of the conversation. Um, Silky, Direction, Aziz, uh, Haymarket, thanks so much for joining us today and for sharing your insights, your brilliance, um, your organizing strategies. Um, really looking forward to more conversations like this, um, both with all of you and um, within all of our organizations all over the country and the world. So um, good night and thanks everyone for joining us. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.